Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the History Hotline. Today's episode will be about Beryl Gilroy, the writer, the teacher, the psychotherapist, more importantly, one of the first blackhead teachers in this country. Before I get into the podcast, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening from the very start. I can't believe we're already on episode 5. I'm hoping there'll be like, I don't know, 500 more episodes in the future. Um, But for the first five... I've really learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about black history, which sounds ridiculous because it's what I study. But even creating these podcasts, I've been able to learn so much more. So thank you for being part of this journey. I hope that you'll stick with me as we head into Black History Month, which I feel like will be very exciting. I know, for me anyway, every day is Black History Month um, with the things I study and the things I do. But hopefully, you know, there'll be so many resources for people to tap into um, and get to know a little bit more about maybe different kinds of black history, maybe get to look into some other countries and other regions of the world um, and be inspired. So that will be coming up. It's Black History Month in, well, next week, really. And hopefully you will enjoy the content that we have planned for next month. Today we will be talking about Beryl Gilroy as I mentioned earlier. She was one of the first blackhead teachers in the UK. I believe she might have been second to a woman called Yvonne Connolly who was appointed in January 1969 and I believe Beryl was appointed in the September of 1969 but regardless both of them were pioneers uh, for black women in education um, the first people to reach that post it took until 1969 despite the fact that you know black women had been in this country as fully trained teachers since the 1940s and prior. Beryl came from British Guyana she was born in 1924 And, you know, during her 20s, she trained and worked as a teacher. So she was already a teacher um, whilst in Guyana. Um, For those that don't know, Guyana is... It's classified as part of the Caribbean, but geographically it is, like, north of South America. It's, like, right on the top, just above Brazil, and it borders with Venezuela and Suriname. So as you might have figured out, uh, Beryl came as part of the Windrush generation. And oftentimes when we think about the Windrush, we think about this male-dominated voyage of migration from the Caribbean. But it is a case that there were so many women travelling on that ship as well. And even in the video where Lord Kitchener is singing, I think it's the Pathé Newsreel, um, where he starts singing, London is the place for me, um, and it pans around the Windrush and it looks at the people coming off. It's a lot of men, young men, who were ex-servicemen, and their wives, if anything, and maybe their children. But it is the case, it is definitely the case, that there was a strong female presence on that ship, and oftentimes that is lost. Now, there were around 400 to 500 West Indian passengers on the ship. They were described and have been described historically as male and Jamaican, which is not the case. Um, There were people on that ship from all over South America and the Caribbean, and also from countries in Europe as well. There were a lot of Polish people on the ship. In total, there were said to be 257 women on the ship. 69 of those were travelling with their husbands, meaning the remaining 188 were travelling alone, which means, you know, unlike the kind of myth and the idea that women only came as part of the family unit and they only came attached to their husbands who their families would have, like, passed them off into the hands of, Women came independently, they came on their own and they came for their own career aspirations and prospects. So many Caribbean countries um, were obviously colonised by the British Empire and so the members of the 
those countries were members of the British Empire and citizens of um, Britain, and that's why they were able to come over so freely. And it was the case that they knew, um, as women especially, that there were extra educational prospects um, in England with universities and with schools and with further training. And following on from the tradition of World War Two, where many women took the trip, signed up, uh, volunteered as part of the Auxil- Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, and moved to Britain in order to pursue further training and obviously to serve the country during World War Two. This tradition continued on and the war really proved to women, I think, of the Windrush generation that they could do this. It wasn't something that was impossible for them to achieve whilst men had been making that journey. And the history of the Caribbean it is a history of migration. There's so much migration in and out of the country from different types of people women were not excluded from that migration and women had agency over their own options and over their own career paths for the future, hence why so many women came on their own. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm currently writing my master's dissertation and it's about Caribbean women and how they navigated British society um, in regards to their professional lives and the things that they did and the struggles that they had and how they overcame that through activism and I've noticed that a recurring theme in my research is that the women that are most prolific, the black women, should I say, that are most prolific in British history are the ones that wrote their own books and wrote their own stories or wrote the stories of each other. There are two notable examples and they are two Marys, Mary Prince and Mary Seacole, who both um, wrote autobiographies. I think Mary Prince um, dictated hers and it was written for her, but Mary Seacole wrote hers. Mary Prince is known as an abolitionist. She was born in Bermuda to an enslaved family of African descent um, and she managed to escape and ended up living in London. And she wrote her narrative, The History of Mary Prince, in 1831. Sorry, she was born in 1788, died in 1830, 1833. And it was the first account of the life of a black woman to be published in the United Kingdom. And it goes into her life um, as an enslaved woman, the brutalities of it, and looking back at a time where slavery was still legal in Bermuda and other you know, Caribbean islands and British colonies. And... Apparently it had a big impact on anti-slavery movements, on abolitionist movements, but we would never know that because when we talk about abolition in this country, all we do is pat the British people on the back for ending slavery, the same slavery that they started. The second Mary um, to publish her book as a black woman in Britain um, was Mary Jane Seacole, who was um, a British Jamaican nurse, healer and all-round entrepreneur and businesswoman, I would like to say. She wanted to serve as a nurse in the Crimean War, which Britain were fighting in 1853 uh, in the Crimea, and she travelled all the way from Jamaica to Britain to sign up and enlist. She went to the war office and they turned her down on, obviously, because she was black. Um, Not obviously, but, you know, people were extremely, extremely, extremely overtly racist in those days. And she also went to Florence Nightingale, um, to ask if she could serve um, as part of her like nursing troop, um, and Florence said no. Also, there was no no room for a coloured woman, and so Mary Seacole, off her own steam, off her own finances, she went to the front lines. Like she was about four meters away from actual live combat, and she started healing the soldiers. Um, they literally referred to her as mother by the end of it, um, and they'd go to her. She had 
lots of alcohols, lots of um, herbal remedies for different kinds of ailments that the soldiers were going through. Um, and also she had a lot of like home comforts, home comforts while she was there. Um, and she opened up what she called the British Hotel and was able to sell these things um, to the soldiers and people that needed it. On her arrival in, back in Britain, she was absolutely bankrupt and the soldiers rallied together to throw her a charity ball to raise money for her and she also wrote her autobiography in order to sell it to raise funds and she was able to do so and even the from the foreword of her autobiography you will see how highly these men that fought this battle um, spoke of her of this woman um, and what they what she'd done for them William Howard Russell who was special correspondent to the times during the Crimean War, he said in the preface to um, Mary Seacole's autobiography, he said, I should have thought that no preface would have been required to introduce Mrs Seacole to the British public. I think that speaks volumes in itself, this idea that how could anybody forget a lady like her? However, I don't know many people that learnt about Mary Seacole in school. Um, I know many people that learnt about Florence Nightingale, though. Anyway, I say that all to say... The only time, it seems, that black women are remembered in history is when they write their own history and write themselves into history. Um, A similar story could be said of women like Connie Marks, who fought um, as part of the ATS during World War II from Jamaica um, and other Caribbean islands. When she came to Britain to work as a medical secretary um, and other women that came as teachers and NHS workers, they couldn't believe that British people didn't know that black people had fought in the war. Um, And so they had to start their own campaigns to have memorials for themselves and their fellow women that had had done so much. And to me, that just says a lot about British history and British consciousness and British memory when it comes to the war and when it comes to black people and issues of race. And not that this needs to be an issue of race, because let's be honest, if, if there's a big world war and everybody helps to fight, then you should surely remember all those people. But obviously, in the context of the 1950s, in the post-war era, when all of these countries um, in Africa, in Asia and in the Caribbean were kind of toying with the idea of going for independence um, and were trying to not necessarily prove that they could be independent, but state in their cases, this idea that if black people and brown people were seen and perceived as heroes during the war, then surely they were heroic enough to run their own countries. And this is something that the British didn't really want them to be able to say. And I think by denying them and erasing them that historical memory, they were able to do that and hold on to the empire for that little bit longer. Right, I definitely think that is enough tangents for today. But I do want to make one more point. Um, And it's just to give a quote by Julia Sudbury, who, PhD, she wrote at Warwick um, in the 90s. And it's a quote that's carried me through my research. And it says, black women have expressed their determination to come to voice, to be listened to rather than examined or spoken for. I think her sentiment regarding a lack of black women you know, mentioned in history, but also maybe a lack of black women in academia writing these histories or in, you know, as authors, being able to tell, you know, our own stories. And I think that alone influenced my methodology when writing my dissertation because I use oral histories and I try to use people's autobiographies in order to actually, you know, let them speak for themselves. Um, And that's kind of my favourite way of telling history. 
except for when I'm just talking on this podcast. Um, but I think that was really important. And now we are most definitely going to start talking about Beryl Gilroy because it's about time. So as I've mentioned, Beryl Gilroy, she came from Guyana and she came to England in 1952, to London specifically. And she wrote an autobiography in 1976 called Black Teacher. Now, Black Teacher, it's it's not your standard autobiography, you know, where she starts with her childhood and goes through all her life and the significant moments that led her to be the woman she is today. It's quite, I don't know the best word for it, but maybe if I said it's quite fluffy, there are a lot of stories, there's a lot of extra detail and I think it's beautiful. I think the way it's written is it's really enjoyable and it's really good to read. And it's a quite an easy read. You don't feel like you're you're tripping upon details constantly. It's just well explained and well explored. She explores her feelings quite a lot to the challenges that she faces at each point of her life, um, especially when trying to break into teaching in Britain. She is um, like doing secretarial and administrative work for a really long time, um, but she knows deep down that she wants to be a teacher and... She's turned away from so many jobs, even as a supply teacher. The one that stands out the most in my mind is where she went, she got called in to go to, um, I think it was a Catholic school. And the priest, you know, sees her at the gate and says, who are you? And she says, oh, I'm the supply teacher. I'm here to fill in for today. And he says, oh, no, there's absolutely no way you can work here. And she's like, what do you mean? Um, he's like, oh, no, the parents wouldn't have it. Like the staff, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work out. You can't work here. Um, obviously alluding to her blackness. And... This is it's always makes me laugh because, you know, he's supposed to be a man of God. Um, and I don't know, the Bible that I read doesn't have any anything about discrimination in it. However, you know, he places the blame on his staff, on parents, as if to say, you know, they wouldn't accept you. And we want it to be an easy transition. Um, whoever comes to fill this supply role. So I'm so sorry you can't work here. Um, and that one stood out to me most, but there were a lot of rejections. She faced rejections from the employment office, from different schools, from even when she actually got the job whilst in the job. Parents who didn't want to um, have their children being taught by her, teachers that didn't want to teach alongside of her, head teachers who didn't think she was capable. And obviously, when she finally becomes a head teacher, staff that didn't want to be told what to do by a black woman, parents that didn't want their children in a school run by a black woman. And it's just a constant onslaught of just prejudice um, from all angles throughout her um, autobiography. Beryl Gilroy also um, wrote fiction, children's fiction. And this was after actually publishing The Black Teacher. But she realised as as a teacher teaching um, young children in a primary school who were learning how to read and write for the first time, the books that they were being given to read were, first of all, downright racist um, for the most part. And if they weren't racist, they didn't really include any narratives or any stories of anyone other than white people, white children. And so she wanted to make a change um, and she didn't want, you know, black children in books to just be reduced to racial stereotypes. So she wrote quite a few books and they all have quite different themes and some of them are for younger children, some of them for children that are a little bit older. And I haven't read any of them, um, but I'll give you some of the titles if you ever are interested. There was The Frangipani House in 1986. She wrote Boy Sandwich in 1989. Stedman and Joanna, A Love in Bondage, 1991. Echoes and Voices, 1991 as well. Um, and then there were a few books that actually got rejected by uh, publishers at the time. It's very clear when reading Black Teacher that Beryl 
doesn't just you know want to be a teacher for her own ambitions or her own selfish reasons she actually wants to make a difference within children's lives and it's interesting to read it and as the book goes on I think a main theme of the text should be identity because as it goes on she is more and more aware of her her identity as more and more people point out her blackness obviously she knows she's black as reading it but I think she really understands and begins to explore how much her colour is affecting her trajectory within this profession most notably in the text are the encounters of prejudice that Beryl faces and just the ignorance of of people um, in Britain at the time. Um, She starts by, you know, saying, and this is a quote, not so long ago, a black teacher or a black child was a rarity in Britain. Attitudes to the few blacks then in the country were much the same as they are today, but the way people deal with them or react to them has altered. Um, And she goes on to explain how, um, you know, different parents from overseas, not just British people, actually, um, needed convincing that a black woman could could teach their children and she talks about specific countries and specific people that have come from those countries and they kind of look at her and say oh where are you from Um, and question her ability and so it's not just a thing of Britain and white people in Britain being prejudiced but the prejudice that's just all around the world because of the fact that the British Empire and European colonization was just so widespread and far-flung that these attitudes persisted on a global level. I believe an important theme in this autobiography is identity and the conflicting view she has of her own identity. She said, I realised afresh that I belonged in a cultural no-man's land. However often I had sung, I vowed to thee my country on Empire Day in the pouring rain. I wasn't English. Brought up as we were under faraway flutter of the Union Jack, I believe that at that time we West Indians did think of ourselves as English. But Englishness, I now realise, contained elements of history, culture and perception to which I could lay no claim. I wasn't African either. I was of the generation of West Indians who regarded Africanness as something morbid, a backward step that must be avoided at all costs. Until my 20th birthday, I had never seen an African outside my school textbook. I found this... I found this quote quite interesting because this idea that, you know, Beryl can't really understand the fact that she's not English she's not maybe what she thought she was being brought up in at the time British Guyana now just to give context more context sorry um but in the Caribbean and in the British colonies in schools you would have been educated by maybe white British people but also um black people or caribbean people from the you know the country that you were in if you were in jamaica you'd have jamaican teachers but you'd also have white jamaican teachers or white british teachers and you were trained by white people um, in most professions um, and the country was run by white people they had empire day where all children would go to school and you know sing to the queen or the king whoever was um, in power at the time and you know, they were very, they were taught to be proud of their mother country. They were taught that they were citizens of Britain, rule Britannia, all of that. It went, they didn't have this identity that we have now, maybe, um, as second and third generation um, children and young people and adults of Caribbean countries or African countries. They were very patriotic to Britain. They believed that the British system um, was the right system and it made sense for them at the time. Um, whilst Beryl is quite adamant that she was not 
um, you know, perceiving Britain to be the motherland um, in interviews that I've um, listened to of hers um, from the past. She's very clear that she didn't see Britain as a motherland, but obviously she knew it was a place of opportunity. Um, but a lot of the women who I've studied in my research do share this idea that Britain was this country, it was their kind of home, and that when they got here and they realised that British people were not educated about the colonies, British people did not know that, you know, black people were part of their commonwealth, a part of their world, in a sense, they really struggled with that. And I think that was kind of the biggest shock because that came along with so much prejudice and so much discrimination. And moving on also to the point she mentioned about this idea that she wasn't African. Um, there's now, I think, a movement um, and quite... Not that, not so recently, actually, because it stems back to Pan-Africanism that, you know, as a black person, you are of the African diaspora and that you should feel a kind of cultural pull towards that. And that is very difficult for Caribbean people to feel because we are so far removed from um, African countries. We don't even know what country in Africa we would have come from and if that country even exists or that region even exists anymore as it would have done. And this idea that Beryl has only understood African people or seen them in her textbooks until she was literally 20 years old and she meets um, someone who is African. And this idea that she's described them here as, you know, being an African person, it's a backward step. It must be avoided at all costs. Um, this idea that Africans were literally cannibals and savages really did persist into Britain into the 1950s and 60s. And unfortunately, it was upheld by West Indian people and Caribbean people because that is what they were taught. They were brainwashed to believe that. And it wasn't until they got to Britain and cultural mixing started to happen that these myths were dispelled. But, you know, the ideas and the prejudice and the ignorance was still there for a lot of people. I don't want to give too much away about Black Teacher because I do think that, you know, if you are listening to this podcast, you definitely should read it. I think it's available on Amazon if not, if you're in a university, definitely should be in your library. But I've noticed that some universities carry very few texts by black people about black history. And so, you know, if you can get your hands on this, please do. And I think the narrative itself it encompasses all the struggles that black women faced coming into this country in terms of not just education and profession and getting into teaching in the case of Beryl, um, because she's obviously very successful in the end and she becomes a head teacher. But also she speaks on her struggles finding housing, um, her struggles, not really so much struggles, but just her experience dating um, and eventually getting married and having children and then raising children within this society that she's facing all this prejudice and not wanting her children to absorb any of that. But then balancing that with her work life and trying to stay in the profession and she goes through so much as a black woman you know as black women do and I think it's so beautifully written it's not one of those texts where you'll you'll read it and you'll come away feeling broken or your spirit a bit crushed you feel quite uplifted it's got so many funny moments in it especially her experiences with children especially the children that you know they don't understand blackness they've never seen a black person before they they try and rub her skin to get rid of the darkness or they want to touch her hair because it's so um, puffy and soft and so different to theirs and I think the tale is quite it's very well written um, it's exceptionally written and it really does encapsulate that experience of a black woman in Britain at the time and we definitely need more narratives like it and I, I wish that you know 
the erasure didn't exist and we could read more narratives like that but I guess we just have to start writing them now. Beryl Gilroy's um, autobiography is an incredible tool to have um, as a historian and just generally to read it's a great book as I've mentioned many times in this podcast already Um, and for any historians out there that do black British history or anyone that has read quite widely um, I just wanted to kind of talk about her legacy and maybe who she's left behind. She passed away um, a few years ago. Um, Her son is actually Paul Gilroy, who wrote There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, Post-Colonial Melancholia and The Black Atlantic. And I think it's incredible that these women trailblazing in their attitudes towards, you know, making a better life for themselves and coming over to Britain and then managing to leave such a such a long-lasting legacy, you know, through her son and through her own writing and through her own texts and the work she's done in education as her life continued. You know, she went on to get a degree in psychology um, from University in London and continued to study to make education better for those coming up within the system. And I think that's a testament to black people and black women more, more generally. Um, it's something that is always done and something that's done so beautifully uh, by Beryl. That is definitely all we have time for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you'll be back next week to hear more about Black History Month and all the exciting things that we should have planned for the month. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.